From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, being black in America and being black in France. Gary Young will talk about Josephine Baker, the black American dancer who went to Paris in the 20s and later renounced her American citizenship. She's being interred at the Pantheon alongside Voltaire and Rousseau this week. But first, what is to be done about the new Omicron variant of COVID-19? We'll talk about it with Greg Gonsalves of the Yale School of Public Health. That's coming up in a minute. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Greg Gonsalves works at the Yale School of Public Health on epidemiology for infectious disease. He's also been an AIDS activist for 30 years and he writes regularly for The Nation about the pandemic. He's also a 2018 MacArthur Fellow. Greg, welcome back. Thanks, Ken. Well, we're being told if you haven't been vaccinated, get vaccinated. If it's five or six months since your second shot, get the booster. And last but not least, be sure to wear a good mask in public places. But you say we need more than just personal advice for the well-protected. What else do we need? Well, look, we've gotten a false sense of um, complacency starting in January 2021, thinking that vaccines were going to be the answer to our problems. And yes, indeed, I'm happy you're vaccinated and I'm vaccinated that if we're not boosted, we'll be boosted soon, which provides a great deal of protection from SARS-CoV-2 and, and severe disease of COVID-19. Um, but most of the world is not vaccinated, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, there's very, very few people vaccinated compared to most other places in the world, including uh, Europe and North America. And this is exactly where places like new variants will arise, where there's uncontrolled viral replication. But here at home, you know, I don't know where you are, but where I am, people are maybe wearing masks, depending on which town you're in, uh, what kind of setting you're in. People are no longer taking the, the sort of precautions we took last winter, although we've seen cases started to tick up all across the country with deaths mostly in the places where people aren't vaccinated. Biden said on Monday that the United States has distributed more free vaccine to poor countries than all the other wealthy nations combined. Is that right? Promises, promises, right? Promises have been made. What shows up on the ground is a different story. And the point is, if you look at the maps on the New York Times website or The Economist or, or, or other places, you'll see that vaccinations in sub-Saharan Africa compared to the rest of the world are incredibly low. Many people around the world are getting access to the Chinese vaccine, the Sinovac and such. 
you know, we've been waiting and waiting and waiting. As my friend Fatima Hassan says from South Africa, it's been drip, 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 drip over the course of 2021 in terms of promises and deliveries for vaccines. And it's not just for South Africa, it's the entire continent. Because we have Pfizer and Moderna refusing to, to do what people have been begging them to do for close to a year now, which is to make the recipe for their vaccine available along with tech transfer so we can scale up broadly across the globe to get everybody vaccinated within the next six months. Uh, I have a friend who does some work in Zimbabwe who just got back. He said that they mostly have the Chinese vaccine and mostly the people who get it are the ones who are in the tourism industry, who work at the upscale uh, hotels uh, near Victoria Falls because the country wants to, the government wants to restart tourism. And, and in the countryside, very few people, maybe nobody ever gets vaccinated and they don't ever test or, or anything else. What do we know about the Chinese vaccine? How effective is it? The Chinese vaccine, particularly boosted, I, I think, you know, gives you reasonable protection. You know, the point is, is that you just described the situation of haves and have nots. You know, many people I know in South Africa are vaccinated, but they're um, middle class um, academics or activists. You know, as you start to move out into the countryside, you see fewer and fewer people getting vaccinated. The pandemic has um, exacerbated and fed on our inequalities, both domestically and internationally. And that's what we're seeing with vaccines. Um, you know, there's political opposition to getting vaccinated in the U.S. among some Republicans, not all. But there's still zip codes within New Haven and New York and other places around the country in which vaccine penetration and, and uptake is, is still low. So we're still battling inequalities of healthcare access, which have plagued us for many, many, many generations here in the U.S. You mentioned the Republicans. I have to quote Texas Representative Ronnie Jackson, who is a doctor, who tweeted about the new Omicron variant, quote, here comes the MEV, the midterm election variant. They need a reason to push unsolicited nationwide mail-in ballots. Democrats will do anything to cheat during an election, but we're not going to let them, close quote. And then a Fox News personality named Pete Hegseth explained the idea, quote, count on a variant about every October, every two years, close quote. So for them, somehow the Democrats have gotten the entire world to pretend there's a dangerous new variant of the virus, which they need as a pretext for voting by mail. What a jackass. I mean, you know, excuse my French, but, you know, the point is, is that in any other time period, we discount these folks as, as, as cranks and charlatans and, and know-nothings. But they are um, sadly representative of an entire political party, which has been downplaying the need for vaccination and masks. And they'll say, oh, it's about mandates. No, it's actually when you when you have representatives like, what's your name, Nancy Mack from the Low Country in Virginia, I think, saying, you know, it's better to get infected than to get a vaccine. Well, no, it is not better to get infected than to get a vaccine. You're going to be much more protected from COVID-19 and a severe disease and death uh, by vaccination. And so we really, really have to wonder how we got to the point where Ronnie Jackson becomes uh, an avatar for his party uh, and his party's thinking on public health, particularly when he's a physician. We've mostly talked here about vaccines, but you have written recently that vaccines are not enough. They're only the beginning and that Omicron is a reminder of how little we are doing on pandemic prevention in the broader sense that the social safety net counts as part of pandemic preparedness. We've talked about this before, but let's do it again. Look, the vaccine's great. I'm so pleased we have a vaccine that protects most of us from 
severe disease and deaths from COVID, but we didn't have to be in the situation of being, you know, one of the worst performing nations on the planet in terms of the response to the pandemic. And we'd like to say, oh, it was Donald Trump or it's this president or that president, but we, we spend so little on public health in the United States. Three cents on every healthcare dollar is spent on public health. We have a really frayed public health infrastructure, and it left us vulnerable to this pandemic starting in, in January of 2020. But everybody also likes to think that public health always has to be exactly sort of on the money, you know, testing, treating, testing, treating vaccines. We are protected by the social safety net. We have something in public health called social determinants of health, that things like education and clean drinking water and other things in your sort of broader environment, housing, really determine whether you get sick or ill. You know, look at the, the places in the United States that have poor socioeconomic status or levels, and you're going to see health disparities, um, which way pre predated the pandemic. Things like unemployment, things like assistance to families, nutritional assistance, you know, income support, all are de deeply important in, in providing the sort of the ability for people to stay home when they're sick, to protect themselves and their families from acquiring the virus. And we just didn't have the potential to do it here uh, unless you could afford those privileges. And that takes me to your new piece at thenation.com. It's called COVID Year Two, about suffering the old masters were never wrong. That line is the title of a gorgeous poem that W.H. Auden wrote in 1938, just on the eve of World War II. It's about a gorgeous painting by Bruegel, Landscape with the Fall of Icarus. In the painting, reproduced in the Nation magazine, something we don't see very often, a tiny Icarus falls into the sea. We just see his feet in a little splash. And in the rest of the painting, people are carrying on their normal lives. A plowman plows, a shepherd tends his flock. And Auden writes, about suffering, they were never wrong, the old masters. How well they understood its human position. How it takes place when someone else is eating or opening a window or just walking dully along. So this is about people turning away when someone else is drowning. COVID year two. The poem has been with me you know, since my youth, but the whole idea that we return to normal in the midst of catastrophe is not just a predicament of the COVID pandemic. It's sort of in human nature. We want to get on and back to normal, but you know, back to normal means we need to literally turn away from the scene of scene of the catastrophe, whether it's a drowning boy or it's millions of people getting infected every day. What sort of astounded me is I wrote the piece on Tuesday and sent it to Don, our editor, and it came out on Thursday. And then on Friday, you know, the new variant gets splashed all over the papers. The interesting point there is in the piece, I said, look, you know, we can continue to sort of go back to normal and forget about the suffering of others. But, you know, in a certain sense, it's not a great testimony to our, our, our sort of national resolve and, and personality that we're willing to sustain, to watch so much death and suffering pass by, but also it's just going to allow more variants to emerge. And like, you know, 24 hours later, <laughs> our new variant is on the front page of the newspapers. I quote a professor from Oxford in there who actually Auden was a professor at Oxford too during his time, but I, I quoted him and he said, look, he said at the beginning of this year, if we think we're going to get away with sort of the virus turning endemic and sort of being with us forever and ever, it can go in two different directions. It can be at a very, very low level and pops up worldwide, you know, maybe like the flu, which does a lot of damage, or it can be what we have now, which is a really high level of death and destruction that we're willing to put up with. What that's setting us up for is wave after wave of variants. And, you know, 
our, our latest variant appeared just late last week. One more thing. We're recording this on Tuesday, which is Giving Tuesday. For people who want to give money, you have recommended something called the Health Justice Initiative, which I knew nothing about. What is the Health Justice Initiative? Fatima Hassan, who um, I worked with in South Africa when I was there in the early 2000s, is a human rights lawyer who's been working on access to medicines for a really, really long time and was instrumental in the fight for access to antiretroviral therapy in Africa and in South Africa. The old gang got back together, you know, in 2020. Um, and Fatima has been really one of the leading voices pushing for access to COVID vaccines around the world. What's important is that small groups like hers, Health Justice Initiative, aren't Oxfam or Amnesty International or Doctors Without Borders. She's a tiny organization sort of leading the fight on the ground in South Africa, which has had, she's had a nat, an international impact um, and they're struggling right now. And so every cent or every rand in their case counts. Greg Gonsalves writes about the pandemic for thenation.com. Thank you, Greg. This was great. Thanks, John. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Mini Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Now it's time to talk with Gary Young about Josephine Baker, the American-born black singer, dancer, and French resistance fighter, is being interred at the Pantheon in Paris, where France honors its most distinguished citizens. She's the first black woman to be interred there. Gary Young is a writer and broadcaster, professor of sociology at the University of Manchester, a former Guardian columnist, and a member of the Nation editorial board. His books include The Speech, the story behind Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream, and Another Day in the Death of America. We reached him today at home in London. Hi, Gary. Hi there. Well, Josephine Baker was the granddaughter of enslaved people, born in 1906 in St. Louis. She became a dancer on Broadway, and then in 1925... She moved to France to escape American racism. She renounced her American citizenship in 1937 to become a citizen of France. When World War II came, she joined the French Resistance, using her status and femininity to travel and gather information. She's held up as evidence that France has been more welcoming to black people than the United States has been. And indeed, throughout the 20th century, France has welcomed many African-American artists, writers, musicians, famously Richard Wright, James Baldwin, Chester Himes, musicians including Sidney Bechet, Bud Powell, Nina Simone. Richard Wright wrote in 1951, quote, 
There is more freedom in one square block of Paris than there is in the entire United States of America. I know you lived in Paris as a student in 1990. Was that your experience there? No, no, it wasn't. And actually coming across those writings at the time, when I didn't know that much about America, I was kind of shocked. Paris to me, I was a student. I studied French and Russian. So I spent six months uh, at the Sorbonne, and it was the most intensely racist experience I've ever had in my life. Wow. Three or four days a week, I would be stopped and asked for my papers. I had to carry around my passport everywhere. There were color bars in restaurants and nightclubs. When you were looking for flats, people would say, Vous êtes de quelle origine, monsieur? Meaning, <laughs> what, what are your origins, sir? And if, you, if I said I'm British, then I would turn up and then I, I would have wasted half a day because I'd turn up and I'd see that I was black and so on. If I said I was black, well, then it would go on anyway. And, and I lived actually just around the corner from the Pantheon on uh, Rue des Fortes de Saint-Jacques. It was awful. And then I, I would come across these claims, <laughs> and I would think, is it just me? And the other thing that people would say was, you know what? It would be even worse if you were Arab, which was of little consolation, frankly, but <laughs> was kind of worth bearing in mind. And it should be said, this is not this before, not that that would justify, but before there's any issue of terrorism or uh, or anything like that in its modern incarnation. And uh, I was kind of, I was baffled and not disappointed because, you know, who am I to be disappointed in Richard Wright? <laughs> but I was just like, what the, what the hell is that? And as time's gone on and I had wanted to be the Moscow correspondent for The Guardian and then ended up falling in love with American and going in a different direction and learn a bit more about what was going on in Black America, and you kind of, and you, you you get to understand, okay, yes, this is, first of all, it's a statement about America primarily, uh, and what was going on there, in the same way that Obama can say of his dad, as he did in the 2004 speech at Democratic Party convention, my father came to America, a magical place. Hmm. Well, African-Americans couldn't vote. But, I mean, if you came from Kenya and you arrived in Hawaii and you were going to study, then, yeah, I can see it's magical. You've got to look at where – it's not just where people arrive, it's where they come from. And that yeah, given the experiences of Jim Crow, given the experiences of intellectuals in general in America as opposed to France where they are lauded and praised, I can see how – they would experience uh, France very differently. And then, of course, for the, for the French, there was this real desire to... It's like the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So France has long had a kind of uh, chippy relationship with the US, particularly after the war. You know, they called um, the Marshall Plan uh, coca colonization. The Communist Party was the biggest party in the country. There was a resent they didn't join NATO. It was a resentment of American hegemony. And so to have these dissidents from America come to France, well, then, yes, France um, uh, embraced them. So there were 
a few things going on. The experience of America, the warm embrace of France, and, and I just touched on this, but it's worth emphasizing the degree to which France does lord, embrace its intellectuals. That at a certain point, James Baldwin wrote about being arrested and showing the man that he was an author, uh, the policeman, and the policeman kind of going, oh, well, you know, you should have said so. You know, <laughs> author, Trump's, author Trump's black vagrant. And this takes us to Josephine Baker today. Being interred at the Pantheon is a very big deal in France. That's where Voltaire is buried, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Victor Hugo, Emile Zola. Why do you think President Emmanuel Macron approved Josephine Baker's interment there? I mean, Josephine Baker is is a big thing there. She um, she was awarded the Croix de Guerre and the um, Légion d'Honneur, which are France's higher high order of merit, both military and civil. So it's not crazy that she might end up there. By the way, I learned, even having done four years of French, a new verb, during this research, this article, which is pantheonize, which is to pantheonize. <laughs> that people can be pantheonized. <laughs> um, but, but these are political decisions. There's a range of people who might be, it doesn't cost you anything. It's quite kind of garish, really. They dig somebody's bones up and then put them back in the pantheon. But nonetheless, it's a kind of... Um, it's ceremonial and it's symbolic. And so you have to look to what it symbolizes. And I think that France has has had some challenges with race and racism over the years. It's got one of the biggest fascist parties in Europe or extreme right parties in Europe in what was the Front National, which is now being eclipsed by another party. And it's an article of faith in the Republican notion of itself, the French French Republican, not the GOP. The, the the notion of la République is indivisible. And so race is not a category that is recognized even. And yet racism exists. <laughs> and few people would really doubt that. Then comes along the uh, Black Lives Matter movement. And there has been this very, very severe pushback in France against uh, what they call la politique identitaire, um, identitarian politics. And just to give one example, which is the Paris Opera did what most artistic bodies have done since the Black Lives Matter protests uh, broke out, which is they, they took a look at their inventory and said, you know, what can we do? They had a review. What can we not do? What can we do better? And they decided quite uncontroversially, you would think, to drop a few of the pieces that they'd been doing for a while and to no longer do blackface or yellowface. Well, I mean, you'd think that they had banned a cartoon or something, the way that they went on. The editor of the liberal Le Monde, Michel Guerin, called it self-censorship and said that the uh, head of the Paris Opera had been wallowing in American culture for 10 years because... He had been the head of the Toronto Opera before, so North American culture. There's a movement uh, within the academy to kind of stop identity politics and this push against things like 
critical race theory, which in America comes from the right, in France is coming from the liberal left. And so you take someone like Josephine Baker, who is American, and you elevate her to this highest degree in her death. And what you say is, you see, someone like this can thrive here and they can't thrive there, that we're doing something right and they have done something wrong, that their racism is worse than ours. So let's talk about what we know about race and racism in France today. What do the data on race, ethnicity, and religion in France today tell us? Well, there is barely any data because it's illegal to collect data on grounds of race. So we don't know for sure the level of black unemployment or uh, Maghreb or Arab unemployment in France. We don't know for sure the rates of stop and frisk, the disproportionality. Uh, we know it's bad because we see it. And my experience, albeit 30 years ago, is evidence of it. There have been some efforts at some kind of polling. So there was a poll in an area called Saint-Saint-Denis where a lot of black and Arab people live. And there, 80% of people thought that race and ethnicity was the basis for discrimination in dealing with the police or employment. Uh, the Migration Policy Institute found that a third of children of immigrants believe they're not considered French by other people. A third of French people acknowledged being racist. Uh, one in four French people believed that their empire was something to be proud of. Just one in seven thought it was something to be ashamed of. So what we do know isn't particularly impressive. And one of the things that's very important to kind of bear in mind is the persistent bitterness, even 60 years later, around the um, Algerian war, uh, which the French lost and were, were kicked out that that was a scar, a deep scar, on um, the French psyche. And if you talk to most non-white French people, as I did for the column, what, they, what they'll say is, look, a year earlier, Gisèle Halimi, a Tunisian-French lawyer, feminist, essayist, campaigned on abortion, wealth redistribution, human rights, she died. And there was a push to put her in the Pantheon. But the uh, Elysee, the, um, like the White House, the French presidential team decided that because she had represented the Algerian independence movement in the past, that her appointment would be too divisive. Wow. And so African-Americans then, or Josephine Baker then, is not just a way of elevating a black woman who has every right to be elevated and who has done the things that need to be done to get into the Pantheon. And by putting her in the Pantheon and not putting Giselle Alimi in the Pantheon, there is a way of kind of almost negating the colonial experience and saying, actually, you know what? We prefer these black people. Yes. Yes. Uh, th those people of color we find like deeply problematic. And so the celebration of African-Americans is partly a way to oppose American society, but it's also about not addressing colonial history. So when I think of Richard Wright's 
you know, there's more freedom in one block of Paris. I, I, I always think now, yeah, but what happens when you step outside that block? So today, the United States has had a black president. It has a black vice president, has a sizable black middle class. France, you write in the nation, has a, quote, a toxic blend of far-right extremists, secular fundamentalism, and racial denial, close quote. So should we conclude here by celebrating America? Uh, no, no. I don't think anybody should be celebrating America's kind of uh, <laughs> racial makeup right now. No, my point there is to say that there was a moment, particularly in the post-war period through to the 60s, where African-Americans needed France and France needed African-Americans. Now, African-Americans don't really need France. It's not that they're having such a great time in America necessarily, but the notion that they would, you know, then escape to France, well, I mean, first of all, they're not doing it. But secondly, the kind of jig is up in terms of kind of French fascism, French racism, and so on. But France still very much needs African-Americans as a foil and as a, as a notion of its non-racial potential. And the fact that they're burying, reburying Josephine Baker should kind of tell you something about where that notion stands, which is kind of six feet under. Josephine Baker, I could emphasize this enough, is more than qualified to get into the Pantheon. But getting into the Pantheon isn't really about qualifications. It's about symbols and the politics of the moment. And the politics of this moment in France is a desperate need to profess that in some way they are advanced in the matter of race. And for this, they've had to reach back to the death of an Af uh, of Well, we call her African-American. She was French. She renounced her American citizenship. But American-born uh, woman and, and say, hey, look what we did 60 years ago. Gary Young, his essay about Josephine Baker and racism in France today appears in the new issue of The Nation magazine. It's called The Dancer Was a Spy. Gary, this is great. Thanks for talking with us today. Thanks, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, 
we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.